there should be much more division of labor and science. Like there should be people who are specifically um, specialized in doing coding or like version controlling, whereas other people should be working on the theory or the statistics of the um, piece of research that somebody's working on. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Heathers from Cypherskin and a special guest, a special guest, Saloni Datani, who is a PhD candidate at King's College London and the University of Hong Kong studying the genetics of psychiatric illness. Saloni is also a science writer for Unheard and Works in Progress, an online magazine she co-founded on the theme of human progress. Saloni, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. Now, some scientists have started blogging and talking about their work and talking about issues on blogs, but you decided to co-found a magazine. Why did you do this? Um, so I had I had some experience with writing um, before the magazine, but I was much more interested in how science was communicated with um, with the public, and I just felt that a lot of the time that wasn't done very well. Um, so people who were writing on science were not very well versed with st- statistics or with epidemiology or causal inference. And I thought that that was something that should be changed, especially if you're trying to convey um, important scientific information that can be used at public policy. Um, so that was my um, reason for being part of this project. And I have three other friends um, who've started it with me. And they had different motivations, like they wanted to spread um, liberal ideas into the world or understand how to make things better. Um, so we kind of collaborated on that to make this kind of magazine on various issues like science, culture, and economics. Um, and that's that's kind of how it began. Well, I mean, it certainly started with a bang. I was looking through it before. Um you got you got a Rachel Lauden article, which is a, she's I, she she wrote Cuisine and Empire for people who are unfamiliar with the history of food. She's like a, she's a total gangster when it comes to uh, food writing stuff. You had an article by Stuart Ritchie the other day who we've had on the podcast here. Um, there's other there's other names I recognise as well. So you certainly you certainly started with a slap. I mean, it looks awesome. Um, I really like this sort of minimalist. Yeah, it looks amazing that it, it's got. Thank you. It, and um, and you've like you've right out of the box with people that as someone who consumes this stuff of looking at it, going, I definitely read this. Um, <laughs> is it um <laughs> can 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 convince all our ridiculous cross-eyed listeners? You know who you are. Um, to 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 give you money or something. How does it how does it get supported? <laughs> So our, our magazine is funded by Emergent Ventures, which is this um, grant program developed by um, Marginal Revolution and Tyler Cohen. Um, so oh, right. he had he had the series of grants that he wanted to give out on people who were writing on progress and that, those kinds of topics. So we applied for a grant from him, um, got a very generous one, and then we decided to put as much money as we could into making the website look amazing and then trying to get lots of good authors for it as well. Yeah. Um, the, the, the whole sort of uh, the, the content is, I mean, I need to spend more t- I only discovered this uh, p- purely by accident um, when uh, Stu wrote this great piece about science screw-ups and the kind of age of the, the plague. Um which came out a couple of days ago, which I think is your issue number three, right. um, which is something that I tried writing about and completely lost my temper more than once. And it was all just sort of unusable and horrible. So, you know, he's a pro and actually seeing it like laid out. I mean, there's a tremendous sort of sense of relief. Um, and I'd, I'd never heard of it before. Um, what what do you hope happens with it? I mean, this is with with three issues in, but where's it going? What's it going to be? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we recently won a big prize as well, so we're thinking of expanding <laughs> it, but we're not really sure. Hey. 
just how much. And I think because for all of us, we also have jobs or like we have some sort of primary occupation. This is kind of a hobby. Um, it's not really clear at this point what we're going to do with it, but we want to pay people as much as possible to write the best content for it and like get as many issues out there as possible. It's great stuff. Uh, you recently co-authored a piece in the magazine, um, and in the piece, uh, you argue that uh, good practices from individual fields should serve as models for how science ought to work across the board, and that the scientific process should be radically reassembled from start to finish. This is the kind of stuff we love. We love here on Hertz. So, uh, how do you think this would happen? I was curious about that. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think in the piece, we focus quite a lot on the practical kind of the practical ways that things would change, but not so much on the ways that we'd get there. And I think that's quite a difficult task, um, trying mm. to set up the incentives correctly to, um, to reward people or organizations that do that. That's quite hard. So we've had, um, We've had Stuart Buck write a piece for us about um, funding red teams, and that would be one way, um, for example, to, to incentivize that or setting up a, I think he, he made a suggestion that we should have an anti-nature or like a, an institution where they just try to challenge all the research that's published in nature <laughs> or something like that. An actual institution, <laughs> that's, all, that's all they do, the entire institution. Yeah. I, I have proposed a similar thing myself. Um, in a variety of, of contexts, which is not so much about challenging things as kicking them in an alleyway. Um, actually, in a fit of irony, I think I asked Stuart for money to do that once. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it, uh, that, that, that never went anywhere. They probably took one look at me and thought that's a terrible idea. But I mean, this is the, the, it is. It, you, look, it raises a very good point. Is that we 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 point out structural problems all the time, and there are many of them. Um, and we 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 throw darts at them and have a yell and a jolly good time, and then everyone goes home. Um, having both the knowledge of what to do next, and then the ability to implement it is a completely separate story. So, right. Um, <laughs> if I could, if I could let you do anything within that kind of uh, the broader realm of reform, what would you pick? What's top of mind? Hmm. I think the thing that's most important is to set up the publication process in a way that it's not like static. It's not just something that gets published and then sits there like that forever. It's it's a kind of document that updates live according oh. to new data or criticism i love that idea so much you can come back every week dan we have a new <laughs> we have a new we have a new co-host you're gonna have to go mate. done in um, <laughs> isn't it that jo good. that joss journal doing that there's a computer science yeah exactly i i cited it in the piece and it's really cool because they work through GitHub, so the reviewers publish um, comments on GitHub to their source code or like for parts of their paper and everyone can see those comments and everyone can see past versions of the software. Yeah, but I think <laughs> I, I have enough trouble getting getting my colleagues to to sign up to GitHub and and look <laughs> and look look at my code. So I, I think that sort of stuff's great for computer science because they they essentially right. li live on GitHub. Um, but I think there needs to be some sort of middle ground, kind of in the way that Overleaf is a middle ground for LaTeX, in that a lot of people will bristle at the, at the idea of using LaTeX. But then if you show them Overleaf, it's that good kind of transition of. Um, uh, of of doing sort of the, the 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 technical product which has version control, but it's still accessible. So I think for this sort right. of thing, like this Joss journal, I've checked it out. It is mind blowing. Like I cannot believe how detailed it is and how fantastical the features are. But then I thought this this will never get up <laughs> in the in the behavioral sciences, or at least more generally speaking, because it's 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 too complicated. So I think there would be a real um, demand. Or there would be real interest in sort of making this so the front end is a little bit more accessible um, right. than, than than doing that. But gee, gee, it's impressive this, this, this journal. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, I th I think 
um, what you mentioned is a really good reason. Um, so the fact that it's difficult for lots of people to use GitHub and things like that is a good reason that I think there should be much more division of labor and science. Like there should be people who are specifically um, specialized in doing coding or like version controlling, whereas other people should be working on the theory or the statistics of the um, piece of research that somebody's working on. No, like a like a like a company, for instance, where everyone has individual skills, and the people in right. marketing don't try and write the firmware, and the people who write the <laughs> firmware don't try and manage the products, and the people who manage the products don't try and run the company, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, almost as if people had certain individual skills that allowed them to work well together, rather than everyone being a. You ever seen one of those like one man bands where the guy's got yeah. bells on his knees and a little drum? And an accordion and a guitar, and he plays them all at the same time, and you you give him like fifty cents for living through the experience. Um, it, it often it often feels like uh, it often feels like that, or at least it did feel like that. I yeah, I'm, I'm, it, it's it's very very different on the other side of the wall, very definitely. Um, and that is one of the mindsets. Like the 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 wrong answer, honestly, at a company is I'll figure it out myself over time. That's generally the wrong answer. It's more the right person to handle this will handle this, and then they'll tell me about it. So I'll know. Um, so there's a lot of sort of like lateral knowledge transition between uh, someone who knows a great deal about like domain specific knowledge. Um, it's just it's just necessary for the the sort of speed of progress. It's yeah. it's necessary that that happens. Um, it's okay. I mean, this is I, I think there's a divide between the kind of grad degree perspective of okay, well, I'll have to learn that. But when you learn it, it's a skill development thing. When you're actually going, okay, well, now I do science for money. Like Dan, he's not a student anymore as much as he is a fresh-faced young whippersnapper. Um, you, you you get into a space where that's not really possible and your skill development is always – it's it's not the priority. It's not what you're being paid for. I mean, it is right. when you're a student. But it doesn't stop. And, I mean, I, you, you see these things sometimes. They're like someone's 40, 50, and they're going, I'm going to learn this programming language and i always think good for you that's fantastic uh welcome to the 21st century um i just hope that you're not prioritizing that over the speed of what you actually need to do right because there's nothing worse than having to learn something complicated in a hurry i think locally we've had um a bit more of a shift to career scientists who work as technicians or as coders or as people who maintain databases and there's there's one person who's working like and she absolutely loves it she's got a permanent position and all she does is focus on helping other people's code and helping write our packages and i think that's great and there should be that's awesome yeah and there should be more of that. it's a, it's a win-win she's she's got a career um she doesn't have to worry about winning grants um but also people who work within her unit then can go to her going, hey, I need some help with R, I need some help with coding, and, and they can do those sort of things. So I think it needs a real shift towards how we see careers in academia, um, but it also needs the, the positions need to be there because if the positions aren't there, then then this, is, this isn't going to work. But this idea of actually having different specialties, like we already sort of have people doing science communication, but they're stretched really thin. Um, and we, we already kind of have technicians, but they're stretched really thin as well. But, um, yeah, having this thing in place would actually, um, in the long run, do, do, do amazing things for science. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, one of the other things that you, that you cover in this, in this article is this tension between the benefits of transparency. I mean, transparency is something we've spoken a lot about on the show. Um, and the, the benefits for science and benefits for society, et cetera. But these things take time uh, both to learn. Um, you don't just wake up going, I'm going to be transparent, um, but also in the actual implementation. How do you think we resolve this tension between the, these two things, between the time taken um, but the actual benefits of, of what transparency is going to bring us? Um, that's a good question. So I think that um, – so I feel like there's there's often been a debate in the kind of open science world on like whether we should slow down – um, research to be more careful and like more transparent on what we publish. Um, but I think that in other ways, there are important, 
there are important things that you really do want to speed up. So you want to speed up being able to notice errors or correct them. Um, and you want to be able to update papers very quickly. So there are parts, there are parts of science where you want more speed and you want more transparency. And there are other parts where you just want to be more careful. And so I think the way around it is to find things that do both. So, for example, having more division of labor would, I think, allow people to be more transparent. So if you have like peer reviewers who are not part of the same community as the researchers, that means they have less um, sort of pressure to review things in a certain way. Um, and it also means that they have more time to develop those skills in a way that um, is efficient. Yeah, I mean, the, the, thanks to our friend James here, there's been a, a massive push towards uh, reviewing papers as being an actual career. What, what, what did you calculate, James? If you do two a day, you're, you you sit in pretty, you sit in pretty salary wise. Sit, sitting very pretty if you do two two a day for, for four fifty. Well, I mean, it obviously, it depends on like, how your tax is structured and how that's regarded. I'd say you're sitting adequate. Yes. Yeah. But also, I mean, look, de- depending on the individual manuscript, I'm like, reviewing two in a day. Um, not everything is able to be done like that. I mean, two full, proper, stringent reviews that are designed primarily to help the authors and improve the quality of the output. Um, that's a day. That's a proper day because, uh, you know, there's a, <laughs> there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of time for checking your fucking farm bill. Um, but yeah, look, it, it's, um, this is I, I'm I'm doing a debate on this in a couple of weeks at the uh, research at a reader conference about sort of paid paid versus unpaid peer review. Um, I've I've thought about it a lot in the last little while. It's obviously it's one of these ideas. I mean, again, we're proposing something, and it touches everything. It touches the incentive structure and the publishers and how people get promoted and how universities understand what progress looks like and the whole sort of managerial culture of assessing people over time. And it's, you know, I just keep returning to the fact that there's no other industry where you spend more than 10 years training to work for free in the middle of the night. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I sort of, I think when I... um got into my master's and my PhD. I didn't think that it was something that was unpaid. I just thought this seems like such a valuable thing, a valuable activity for people to do. It doesn't make sense that this part of it is not um, compensated. Yeah. when I mean, look, the mechanics of making that happen become astonishingly complicated. But, I mean, like... Uh, well, like Stuart's idea that you were talking about red teaming before and people who aren't familiar with hacker terminology, that's basically the people that you pay to break into stuff. Um, it's it's stress testing. Um, I'm a big fan of the hacker mentality, even if I'm very, very terrible at most coding languages and environments. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a small disruptive thing. It's doable. Um, it's absolutely going to be beneficial past a certain point but it's also like i mean you have the immediate agency to act which is awesome um there's plenty of ideas like that and things like we should pay all peer reviewers is a much bigger idea and also i have no ability to compel people to pay attention to it which is super annoying because obviously i want that i'd make a marvelous dictator um (laughs) you 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 can you can advocate something uh, without having to have the finer details from your crystal ball as far as how it all shakes out. At least it it, it should technically be possible. But the one thing you can do is convince people to rather cheekily send a contract for uh, you know time served, and um, that's starting to happen more and more. Uh, I still think it's a good thing, and I still think it's funny. So <laughs> that <laughs> that helps. <laughs> Uh, on peer review, um, another thing that you've, that you've spoken about, Saloni, is this idea that um, we're, we're wasting so much by not actually posting peer review stuff publicly. It's right. uh, yeah, there, there, there's a 
so much information that's just that's just gone unsaid and there's a number of implications to that firstly firstly gatekeeping but but also this this stuff's kind of interesting i think i i saw i saw this thing on twitter where this guy was was absolutely devastated that he got a major revision he's like i'm devastated i got a major revision this is like the worst thing ever and and people were like some people were like oh yeah like oh poor poor bloke and other people were going yeah that's that's kind of normal and i was just thinking Who's your supervisor? Who is your supervisor that hasn't actually gone to tell you, hey, th- th- this is the process, this is how things work, um, and that a major revision is actually a pretty good outcome? Um, and I think if if peer review or the process was more transparent, then people would actually understand, hey, this is the normal thing. The normal thing is a rejection and some vague comments from someone that uh, spent about half an hour looking at your paper. But to, to, to get a major revision is, is actually is actually a nice outcome. And people were chiming in, going, "Yeah, I published a hundred papers, and like one has ever been a minor revision." So I think this is this is one of the, the many benefits that we get from having transparent peer review. Right. We had this one writer for um, Works in Progress on the coming issue, and we were helping him edit his piece. And it was really funny because afterwards he said, it's just such a new feeling to have people review your work in order to improve it rather than being afraid that they're going to reject it outright. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a, yeah. Yeah, editing, if you've never had it before, it's just the thing, it's, you, you spend a lot of time guessing. Um, when, when you when you're writing any any given academic work, you you write it up as best as you can feel. And the whole thing's completely complete. I mean, you get it to the point where you go, okay, we can send that. It's a it's a it's like a categorical decision. Um, but there's no there's no work on it in progress. There's no presupposition of that. So sometimes you have these very ornate finished things and they send it to someone and they go well like 60% of it's good but every other piece of the kind of parquetry that you build into this it's all totally unnecessary mm-hmm. throw it out and start again um and that's stunningly inefficient yeah um I, I i wonder if it's something that could be worked into a registered report past a certain level it's once you agree on how this is supposed to work it's like someone someone assigns you an editor of sorts to help you refine the actual focus of what's happening, what needs to be included. Right. Um, the vast majority of things could be shorter, and that's one thing an editor's really good at. And like that paragraph, we don't need that. That can go. You're ruining the message. It's good fun. I've been paid to edit things now as a as a job, and. It's, there's something actually, I mean, this is another one of your specialized positions or a thing that you could learn to do. It's actually very, like, I mean, it's hard, but there's something that's quite rewarding about it. I could see myself doing it more. You're helping someone and you get right to the end and they're like, I never could have done that by myself. Go, yeah, you're too close to it. That's, uh, that's, that's good. It's good fun. How did you, how did you get this deep into science comps anyway? I mean, is this um, just a persistent interest and then suddenly you just thought, I'll, I'll write a grant and start an entire magazine and publish <laughs> all this dope shit? I mean, most people who have hobbies, it's just like, if, if it's me, I'm trying to learn to sew because um, I keep breaking all my stuff. That's a hobby, but this is this is next level. Yeah, I guess for me, it's that um, the friends that I'm working with are very ambitious. Um, and for me, it was kind of... <laughs> For me, it was kind of a it was kind of a moonshot idea, and they pushed for it to actually happen. If you're liking what you're hearing, there are a few ways that you can support the work that we do when everything hurts. First, you can throw some of your spare change to us each month, five dollars to be exact, and you'll get access to a bonus episode every single month. There's also a one dollar tier that will get you access to the Everything Hurts newsletter and the occasional bonus episode. Second, we've got a merch store where we sell hoodies, shirts, and coffee mugs, which is the most popular thing that we sell, so you can tell everyone that you listen to the best science podcast in the world. Third, you can tell your friends about the show by sharing links to episodes on social media. James and I love seeing these posts. The links to our Patreon page and merch store, check out the show notes. How do you feel your popular writing influences your scientific writing? Is there any crossover there? Does it has it improved it? Or has it? Uh, what's the relationship there? Um, I think it has. I think 
I think it's quite difficult to do public writing well. And the thing that makes it easier is kind of clarifying everything that you're writing about, sort of spelling out every single argument or every idea that you're trying to communicate with the public. And just the just the fact of doing that, I think, makes you think about things much more clearly or sort of looking at the details or the mechanism of something, trying to, like, even when I'm talking to my mom or, like, a friend about something that I'm working on, it helps me understand things that I hadn't been thinking about before. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, I mean, I guess the benefit of scientific writing is it's formulaic, so it's easier, but because it's formulaic, it's boring most of the time and it can be very easy to fall into a rut of, uh, of bad writing. So, I mean, the way that you were describing that process, I was just thinking, man, if only scientific papers were like that. Uh, <laughs> so, sometimes I read these, these old papers and I'm like, gee, they were written so much better, but maybe that's a that's a selection bias thing that only the, 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 the well-written papers are the ones that are sticking right. around. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, look, I, I think, um, I think many people would benefit from having that sort of, um, mentality of just make it clear and then spell things out. Um, you know, some people just trip over themselves, I think, to try and make their points in their scientific papers. Yeah, exactly. And I feel that, um, before I started doing public writing, I think in many cases I would kind of take something for granted and I just say this as if it's a fact. And if, if somebody asked me why, it would, it would take me a while to figure out how to answer them. And communicating science with the public means you're always doing that. Like you're always having people ask you, why does, why does this work? Or how does something else influence that? And that itself just helps you kind of think through things from like the beginning, sort of think through things from like first principles. Now, thinking of, communicating stuff to the public science to the public um obviously the big issue now is 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 covid and at the start of covid there was a lot of hope from behavioral scientists just going hey we've had all these cool ideas for the past few decades now we can finally apply them and this is going to work but that hasn't happened what do you think are the <laughs> big <laughs> what do you think are the big issues what have been what have been the missteps when it comes to applying these principles of behavioral science in efforts to to curb the pandemic um so i guess it's i feel like it's two things the first thing is that there's been this reliance on the traditional behavioral science research that's already been conducted and a lot of that is not very good quality a lot of it's like small studies where you're not actually even testing things experimentally you're asking people how would they change their behavior and just using their self-reports to guide policy, which I think is like a huge, there's a huge gap between what people are finding in their research and how, um, how well it actually applies to the real world. And I think the second thing is that a lot of the times it seems as though behavioral scientists want to do small nudges instead of making big, impactful policy changes. So it seems like there's a kind of fear of doing something um, big or very influential. And that seems to have ended up um, resulting in lots of things that don't really work. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, there was also, um, I feel like there was a period until maybe sort of July, August last year as well, where, I mean, academia has always had an element of ambulance chasing when it comes to a new topic. This is a, this, this is a thing now. Um, I mean, every, everyone can remember some of these from the behavioral sciences, mirror neurons, um, glial cells. Um, what are some of the others, Dan? Oxytocin. That's that's ever played. Oh, <laughs> how could we forget the <laughs> hug hormone? It's um, it's resurrecting. Yeah, as it is. <laughs> yeah, but but then then the plague happened, and it became the topic du jour for everyone, not virologists and public health people specifically, but all forms of life science, medical science, behavioral science. I'm I'm surprised there wasn't more building and construction material work on building plague-proof apartment buildings <laughs> using different sorts of structure or concrete. Um, 
So, I mean, I think, Dan, there's also a degree to where these things were offered somewhat cynically in terms of the entire tension of everything has shifted to that now. Well, that's where the money is, and I've, you know, right. I've got a, I've got a research program to take care of here. So, um, let's, uh, what, what do we, what do we study? Um, uh, the, the pottery of ancient Samaria. Let's see if any of the pieces of the pot in the basement have got the COVID on. <laughs> Come on, for fuck's sake! I mean, it was. I'm, 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 I'm only exaggerating slightly. It was deeply silly for, for a bit, and. There was this paper that Stewart mentioned in his piece on the relationship between the 2D, 4D ratio of like your finger length. No, they didn't. Did they? <laughs> no. no. Really? <laughs> the, 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 sorry, That's hang a on, classic. Hang on. For, for, for people who aren't familiar, this is supposed to be a, like a gestational testosterone thing. The, right. The, like this digit, you know, this little piggy went to market, that one went home. <laughs> What's this guy doing? He's saying we or something, but like the <laughs> ratio of the lengths is a. It's I mean, supposedly it's, it's, a marker of testosterone prenatally. And I think the quality of evidence on that is quite weak. But in any case, they were trying to find a yeah, link between that convenient. and the number of cases in a country. No. <laughs> no. Oh, can can you imagine the laundry list of like pervariant controls? Was it like a, a, a scatter plot with one outlier? Oh my god! A cloud with oh, a line. No, there no, was this I other one like- that I saw. Um, I think this was last year, where they were trying to test whether bald people were more vulnerable to severe disease, and they didn't control for age. <gasps> <laughs> no. No, so that's presumably some kind of that's like a DHT mechanism. Yeah, you know the thing that like the testosterone changes. It does the baldatitude. Obviously, I don't have a lot of testosterone. I look like a hedge, um, <laughs> or or maybe it's just not doing the thing. Um, that's how do you? Ha- <sighs> I mean, see, here's 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 the fun part. This is how you you're never going to have a fully robust defense of, of of peer review in a lot of different contexts. These are real articles. This isn't right. isn't a preprint by uh, like a bloke who lives in a tree and the woman who throws <laughs> the food up to him. No, this th- these are these are real articles in real places that have received real actual peer review. See, when it comes to something like this and something that I'm writing about right now, there was this absolutely like this bonkers paper on. Uh, it was it was on the like, Japanese comfort women. It was published like a, a week or two ago, and it just slipped Americans by because the um the the the, the world stops existing at the sort of Atlantic Ocean near Los Angeles, where the international border kicks in. There's no such thing like going west. So this passed the sort of outrage machine by more or less entirely. But this paper was was got like I'm going to take a game theoretical approach, and we're going to assume that all of these women who are signing up as prostitutes in this system are making a game theoretical decision about this. And if you if you if you put it all together under this framework, there was no such thing as like mass sexual assault during the Second World War. And of course, everyone went that is. A historical garbage and like the single most offensive academic paper I've ever heard of in my life. It's simultaneously like you've, you've managed to hit the terrible paper, wildly offensive combo, like dead on <laughs> bullseye, bullseye, you absolute clown. Um, and the first thing that I could think of is why can't I read the peer reviews? I'd, I'd love to know what happened to this paper. I mean, I don't know what to think about history. Uh, not, not, in, not in any focused sense. I pre- presume that you may well, but Dan definitely doesn't. Um, sorry, Dan, you don't. Um, but I mean, likewise, the 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 the, the finger ratio business, the fucking bald thing. Um, I, I'd love to be able to see what happened. Like, how was that characterised? Because everyone sat around and agreed that was a good idea. The, Why can't the I see behind that curtain? The bald one was even publicised in the news. I think I saw three or four articles on it. Yeah, but there's no articles. There's no articles on the the, the the peer review, and who did it, um, like how that how that happened. Occasionally, sometimes when you compel an investigation, you like the journal 
will say something very limited in a retraction notice about like the original peer review. Like we deemed it was insufficient or um, like some factors were overlooked. That's all you get. You never get to read it or God forbid identify it. Uh, I saw a paper. And now, you know, go on, Dan. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling. It's it's very early. My, my entire life hurts. I, I, I saw a paper that came out um, uh, last year in the, I think the British Journal of Philosophy or Science or something, and, and, the, and the, the first sentence was, um, post-publication, peer review should be abolished. And they go, they go through, and it was it was a fairly well reasoned paper going through why why the, the I mean, one of the main arguments is if you have three peer reviewers who are asleep, which is the case for these <laughs> for, for these for these papers for the for the ball paper as well, then what you get are papers that actually pass through um, pass through the peer review process. Um, so I thought that was a that was a interesting interesting thought experiment of, of a paper for you know w- what is the benefits of peer review and. I think the, the, one of the most yeah I, I do the odd open science talk talk about preprints and and w- one of the first questions you get from 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 people who are a little bit more experienced let's just say is that oh, but but preprints you can you can just you can just post any sort of garbage and then of course the most natural response is well peer review doesn't save that we we know that stuff gets through gets through that and and it's even it's even worse because it has that stamp of this was actually peer reviewed it, it wasn't well, it wasn't it wasn't done very well. Um, so uh, yeah, look, and and there are some fields, of course, like maths, where I mean, some 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 someone just posted on their website, and people were like, let's give let's give them the Fields Medal. Like it, it, it all sort of um, didn't that happen? Some that bloke yeah, from so. Japan, he he posted this this cryptic thing, and it took people three years, and they finally got through it, and like, yeah, this this guy's a genius. Give him the Fields Medal. Um, and there's no journal there. There's no peer review. It, it, it sort of happens. So, yeah, look, um, I, I like this idea that, that you've mentioned about we need to pick and choose the best things from different fields. We all know different fields are doing things very well. Statistical behavioral genetics, um, is doing a lot of things right. It's, 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 it's really impressive. Um, maths and physics and posting all their stuff on preprints is, is really nice. So, this idea that we can actually get this. I mean, so many people are just so set in this is what my field does. Um, right. we, we can't change it. But I'm very interested in actually looking at, okay, obviously some reforms have happened. The first thing that comes to mind for me is the use of equivalence testing in mm-hmm. psychology. This was something which was primarily used in pharmacology since the 80s. No one in psychology had been doing this, although people proposed it. Um, and then, and then now we've kind of gone, Hey, this is an interesting thing from a different field. Let's use it. And, and that's been taken up. So I, what I'm, I, I don't even know the answer to this, but what I've always think about is what other things that make it more likely that we take the good bits from other fields and we can make them standard in different fields? What do you, James, what do you think about that? How do we sort of transplant? What are the characteristics of stuff that we that we transplant from from different fields to actually make this sort of thing successful? Or Saloni? Well, first thought is it's going to get messy, real fast. Um, I like like most of these things. I I think you want to start out with individual test cases where you have very strong evidence that something's going to work. Um, this is like when I, I do some sort of sometimes half-assed, sometimes more formal consulting for people who are starting sort of scientific businesses now. I have for a little while. And one of the things when someone said, I've got a bright new idea, I'm going to do this thing. Well, it's exactly the same format that you're proposing here. We've got a whole bunch of bright new ideas. We're going to do this thing. Um, and my first thought is everyone's trying to boil the ocean straight away. Find a test case, find a field that needs you, find a single journal that you want to flip where you can make an appeal to it and start by making it work visibly. So, I mean, I, I'd, I'd question the sort of back-end structural assumption that you've got there, which is like how can we throw it all at the same time? Um, you know, all the plates go immediately go into the air. You just get to end up with a haircut full of plates, honestly. Uh, <laughs> Saloni, what do you think? <laughs> yes. I think that in some cases, um, you have these different fields that actually have 
like kind of acted as test cases or um, in, in genetics, for example, we have used databases for decades, for example. And that's not something that I see in psychology or any, or lots of other fields. Um, so, and it's really helpful because it means you can do meta-analyses much more quickly. Um, it means you can reuse other people's results in some sort of downstream analysis. And it means that you can, you don't have to keep studying the same thing over and over again. I remember having a conversation with um, with an academic in, in psychology and I'm like, oh, so what do you, what do, you do work in? Like, oh, I, I do some work in behavioral inflexibility. But, you know, um, last study had about 100 people, but, uh, you know, I just wish the sample sizes were larger. And I'm like, you know, there's data from the trail-making test in UK Biobank with half a million people that you can access and they just they, they didn't believe it. It, it didn't compute that the right. fact that there is this thing available that people can use and the data is there for free and it's good quality. It just, it's just, a, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a mind shift, I think for, for, for these, um, for these sort of data sets that are available. And the sort of, it's almost like if you didn't collect the data, it's not valuable. Um, and I mean, even, even for me, like I've had to change the mentality. I, I've been, you know, my, my background is more in ex- experimental psychology and I'm moving more towards these big data sets. And I, even I've, I've had that. I want to, I want to control the data um, but something that, that J- James and I have spoken about before is, well, you can either get a little bit of data that's highly, highly controlled and high quality, or you can get a lot of data that you have less control over. Both have the same sort of benefits in that both approaches will reduce variance that you have in, in your data. Right. Is there is, Are there um, databases that you could use for like experimental kind of research? Because I wouldn't have thought that there's that much of that in things like UK Biobank. Well, I mean, the thing is, experiments are unique. So that, that's, that's the problem. People have different research right. questions. But the good thing is that now um, I love Google database search. No, Google data search. I forget the name of it. Anyway, you can go to this site and it, it aggregates all these open data sets, not including um, OSF for now. Mm-hmm. I think they're trying to change that. So if you have a research question and someone else vaguely asks the same sort of question, then there's the possibility of actually uh, of actually looking into that data and doing some exploratory research. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it's there and the chances that someone's going to ask the same question to you as, 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 as you're interested in is less, but hey, it saves you a ton of resources. Uh, and if someone else has done a similar, similar question, at, at least it's worth um, searching to see if, if a data set is out there for your experimental work. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's out there. Uh, the, the, the add on, I mean, you are obviously familiar with discussing things on a structural level. The only thing I would add to that is we have to start rewarding people for building resources, software, databases, uh, statistical packages. This, I mean, it's not just another fucking paper. It's, these are it's it's a, it's the bread and butter out of which all the other stuff is constructed. These things are like meta contributions, and they should be on pedestals. The pedestals should be really high. Um, also, I mean, it's the contributions like that are much better if you make the assumption that eighty like percent of people leave academia during the kind of top funnely bit where it's it's winnowed down a lot. Um, it's also a very good thing to encourage junior scientists to do because I mean, you build a public resource like that, it's a, if it's any good, if it's solving a useful problem, a lot of people are going to pay attention. It's a great career move and a much more sort of anemic academic move. And that is really fucked up uh, because- Look, I mean, imagine, imagine this. All right, Saloni runs a company. I got give you two applications. One person has built a big public-facing, like something that was difficult to code, resource software package, something. And you know, they have some papers and they did some research. And the other people, the the other person's just got thirty papers. Who's got better skills? Like, who who are you going to hire? I think it's definitely the data person. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't, I don't think people would, uh, I don't think people would disagree. I mean, I've, I've 
been in this position now and you're like, you, you did this cool thing that everyone is using. You obviously understand the needs of other people. Um, you have like the demonstrable skill to be able to do this. But even like contributions to papers are a bit sort of black boxy. <laughs> no, I see you don't you don't know who did what. I'm the first author. Oh no, I'm the co-first author. <laughs> Have you seen those contribution grids? These things, um, they used it for the Psych Accelerator paper and more and more papers are doing this where you basically have a grid, you have certain um, tasks for the paper. Um, you know, this is very similar to what's written out in text at the end of the paper, but it's very prominent. I think it's on the first or the second page. And not only do you, do you do a sort of a little tick for I did this, but you can also do like major contribution or minor contribution. So you can actually look across and see what someone did for a paper. I mean, I, I did, um, I've, I've done two job searches, um, where I've been on, on committees re- recently. And yeah, yeah, people who say, yeah, you know, th- these are the papers that are published and they're like, they're like second author. But I mean, we know second author could literally be they did like 49% of the work or they, they had, they turned up to three meetings and put their hand up and said a few things. We, we don't know. But if there was actually this sort of grid thing for actually understanding people's, at a glance, people's contributions, this would make stuff so much easier for actually figuring out what people did. Because the, or, I mean, and also between fields, um, people, are, there, there are different conventions for, for as to who goes last or who, who goes first. And we, we just have no idea. And I, I think there's, um, you know, and there's disadvantages. Like I, I think I've, I've seen, there's always a new, a new H index metric. The, the latest one I've seen is H index adjusted for number of authors. On papers, yeah. Um, <laughs> so this this is the idea that um, a, a lot of people's H indexes are boosting because they're forty third author on a paper. Um, so this new H index actually benefits people who have done who have done fewer papers. But I mean that that's not going to benefit work. That's going to benefit fields because that that is the convention. Behavioral genetics, fifty papers. That, that that's pretty normal in, in in a lot of fields. But then when you're looking at like sort of philosophy. Like three authors is kind of like what's going on here. Like two is kind of like the the the, the max you would see. So we ah, it, it's just it's, these are one of those things that it's very straightforward change that can be done. Um, and yeah, like like James said, all it takes is a few journals to go. Hey, we're, we're going to do this thing. We're going to make this uh, contribution grid uh, more prominent. People are going to go cool. That that's great. I'm going to include that um in in, in my work, and um it'll make things a bit easier. But look. It's it's really hard, um, you know, especially when you're doing for jobs and grant applications. People um, are just listing their their publications, and you, the the reviewer has to has to make a glance, going, "Oh, third author, I don't know about that." So these things these things are difficult, and everything <laughs> I think everything wrong in academia comes back down to a lack of time. People don't have time to do things, and because people don't have, don't have time to do things, they rely on these heuristics, which are often shit. And that's what's gotten us in this problem. But okay, um, en- enough on en- enough on me ranting. I, I want to talk about this um, before before we close up. I want to talk about this this website that you've been contributing to, Saloni, and that is COVIDFAQ.co. Um, this is uh, this, this is great. This is this is some this is some great stuff. Tell, tell me the story behind this website and um, and some some sort of stuff that you've some sort of feedback that you've gotten from it. Um. Yeah, so so this is a website that I've created with some friends, um, trying to look through popular misconceptions around the coronavirus. So there are things um, such as people saying that vaccines are unsafe. Um, some people will say they cause infertility or something. And then there are other people who are talking about some Danish mask study and that it shows that masks don't work. or um, Loads of different things like that. And at the same time, there are also... Lots of prominent people in the UK who have just been f- spreading these, um, spreading false information um, about new cases, calling them false positives, uh, or saying that there's no new wave of um, there's no new wave of infections or deaths. And we kind of decided to put together the site firstly to track those people's records because it seemed like lots of journalists or news people were not aware that these people were not reliable sources of information. And secondly, to help um, actually correct those myths that were being spread. So it's it's kind of a resource of um, finding out, finding good information on these different questions and also trying to see whether 
certain people in in the media are actually reliable. Right. Uh, I, I I looked it up when I didn't actually know about this one. Dan said you should look at this, so I I looked at it. I didn't quite make that face though. It was early. Um, I mean, just an example page. The thing that's I mean, if you just pick someone who is one of these, I suppose, sources of misinformation. Um, if you just click it, it's just the recent history in many respects of a lot of things that they've said that have been wildly inaccurate. And that's that in many respects, that's all it needs is just sort of fighting against the kind of immediacy of how new information is, is dealt with because I mean, people's historical memories are pretty terrible in general, but they're shot to shit now because every day is, I mean, especially in America, all the fuss at the end of last year. Um, the, 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 the amount of problems that could have been solved if people just had a sort of an institutional memory that went back a year or so, <laughs> just, just knew some context, that'd be nice. I think we'll um, wrap up for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Saloni. We're going to put links up to um, your website. Do, do your friends are prolific? It, it's amazing. <laughs> are, are these different groups of friends who, who have done uh, both COVID there's, FAQ? There's some overlap. Some um, the Venn the Venn diagram yeah. is a bit of a. <laughs> there's oh, like man. you could put together this conspiracy chart of all the connections that I have. Oh. I tell you, um, I need um, I, I need I need some friends like that who are doing uh, doing cool stuff like that. And that uh, that that grant sounds uh, sounds amazing as well. And I, I, the, the first time I looked at the website, um, I'm like, gee, this is designed so well. It's just uh, uh, it look it looks amazing. But um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, th- th- thanks for joining us. We we do uh, wish you all the best for, for 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 your magazine and for the work that you're doing. And uh, yeah, we hope to have you back on the show again soon. Cool. Thank you very much. And thanks for inviting me.